All right, I'll pray and, and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, and, and come as your people uh, to praise your name and, and lift you up and, and honor you. And we do that uh, this morning by looking to your word as our source of instruction, as our source of encouragement. Lord, believing that uh, all these things are true and all these things took place. These aren't just moral stories, Lord, but they're stories that give us an impact on uh, this entire world and certainly the human race and explain to us who you are and how and why we came to be. Lord, I pray that we would enjoy this time, that it would be again an encouragement to us and that we might encourage one another, that we would feast upon your word and that it would uh, fill our lives and make us uh, satisfied, Lord. It's your, your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're in Genesis 38, and, and I told Lane we'd get him caught back up. So we'll run through the first 37 chapters, um, kind of. So we're in the middle of, well, one could say we're in the middle of, of the story of Joseph, and chapter 38 is plopped down in the middle of it. And I would challenge you that we're in the middle of the story of the line of Christ, of the seed that is promised from Genesis 3. And in the middle of that, we're given the story of Joseph. And so 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, probably in, in the sequence of things makes more sense then all of a sudden going off on this tangent and talking about Joseph. Now we know the story of Joseph is going to be the explanation for how the Israelites end up in Egypt. But the story of Judah and Tamar is how we eventually get to the seed. Now we can look back in time and see that according to Matthew 1, 1 through 17, that gives the genealogy of Christ, we're going to come up with uh, one of the... Uh, rungs on the ladder in the family tree there, or one of the branches of the family tree is going to be explained here. And certainly that is, is of greater import when you consider that in Genesis 3, the seed is promised, and we run through again how man is sinful, man fails, God comes and punishes man ultimately in the flood. We have Noah, we have his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And through Shem eventually comes Abraham, and now we're working down this line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now we have Judah. In fact, if the, the discongruity that we saw in the story of Reuben, and it's like, why is Reuben mentioned here? Um, and, the, and the story of Jacob's, the, the Jacob's son and uh, the way that they dealt with Dinah, and the, the, the wrong that was caused to Dinah, those probably have more to do with the line progressing than, than even Joseph. We know, again, looking back, that Joseph was not the line that Christ would come through. It's not where the seed comes through. But certainly to the original hearers, uh, the story of Joseph is critically important for where they're at, where they're going as they travel through. So here we are in chapter 38. We have uh, Joseph is uh, left having been sold to the Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. And we left him in 
left him with Potiphar, uh, Pharaoh's captain of the bodyguard, and he's a slave there. <clears throat> and then we jump back to this uh, interlude about Judah. Judah be one of, would be one of the brothers that plotted to kill Joseph and plotted then to just leave him in a pit to die and, or a cistern to die and then ultimately uh, sell him on as a slave, never to see or hear from that boy again, and he can carry on. So verse uh, 1 through 11 and 38, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, and your ears should prick up that what's he doing with a Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chizib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to the daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Not a, uh, not a glowing story about the children of Israel and their origins. First of all, we see Judah has departed. He has left the family unit. He is off away from his brothers. And he has this friend Hira. And probably not the best influence on him, as we're going to see him reappear here later in the story. But Judah even goes so far as to actually marry a Canaanite. The people that God has said, you know, I'm going to take the land from them, and you're going to go in, and you're going to possess this land. Um, the goal was not to marry Canaanites. We've seen that to this point with Isaac and Jacob, as they are sent off back to the homeland to find their wives. Here Judah finds a Canaanite. And more importantly, he finds a Canaanite and we're given three sons. Now, uh, the three sons, very often in genealogies, it's, they'll mention the kids and we never really hear from them again. And we assume those names were important originally and we don't know who these people are. But this certainly is, the story is built around these three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So his oldest, Ur, marries Tamar. Now, it is interesting that uh, Judah is the one who marries off Ur, and we're going to assume that this is, again, outside of the plan of God and keeping the lines in the family pure or separated from the culture that they're in, because there's no mention that he returns to his brothers or anything like that. And Ur's, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So, we can all... Imagine that there is a certain level of evil that you could do that God would kill you, right? 
Has anyone ever been afraid that God is going to kill me for what I just did? Nobody. I've been there. Um, there, and certainly this would this would bear that out that that his evil was so bad that God was had enough and said, "You're done." Certainly, there the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. We hear see hear this in Ur that fearing God would have saved his life, certainly in the temporal sense. But he doesn't fear God, and God takes him. So clearly, reading this as uh, on its face value, you should it should cause you to fear sin and fear doing evil. But we look at the world around us and we say that, well, I know some people that are pretty darn evil and pretty darn bad, and God does not kill them, right? Has anyone ever seen anyone do evil and prosper by it and live long and not die just after being married? Absolutely, we do see that. But don't assume that that grace of God, the patience of God, is him winking at sin. It's not, and that's, this makes it very clear that God has a right to step in to someone whose life is, is marked by evil and say, enough, you're done, and kill them. It should also make you realize the importance of what this story is dealing with, and that is the progression of the seed, the progression towards the seed. You should realize that this is, a, this is a big deal, what's going on here. So he did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. So then Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as brother-in-law to her to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is not America, that this is it's not the context. This is, this is the Eastern culture, we're Western culture, but certainly in an Eastern culture, and even some of these, these actual progression that we're going to go through are mentioned in uh, Deuteronomy 25. We have it mentioning this is how you deal with this. If, if one brother dies, the other brother, the younger brother, would step in and carry on the line by marrying his wife, if that's an option. And you'd just go down, down the line. In fact, they challenged Jesus with this and said, okay, they do this, and they go through all seven brothers. Who's, who are they married to in heaven? And Jesus is like, well, wait, 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 you don't understand marriage. And you don't understand heaven very well. That that's not the point who she's married to. There's no marriage in heaven. So we see here that, that we have this progression that goes down. And it's the proper progression because the name or of the firstborn and the name of the line as it progresses forward is what's most important. And so Onan would then... Mary Tamar, and the children would then be considered the sons of his brother. And clearly he didn't want that. His father was actually, Judah here is actually following the rules, following the, the, the culture of what's expected, and even following what would be expected of the Jews here 500 years later, 450 years later. And so... Onan then rebels against his plan, rebels against what his father wants him to do, rebels against what is expected as a brother, and doesn't fulfill his duty. 
And so God judges him and kills him as well. So far, Judah has two sons, and the two sons have not done what they're supposed to do. They've done evil in the sight of God, and God has taken their lives. So God takes his life. So then in verse 11, Judah says, let's hold on just a second here, because he knows that the next one is his third son. He's got Shelah left, and he either knows and understands what happened to Onan and is worried that Shelah himself will also fail or that somehow this relationship to Tamar is not a good one and people die. And so he's protecting Shelah from her. I suspect he knows full well what's going on and doesn't want Shelah involved either because he knows the character of of Shelah. Probably knows the character of Shelah because he knows his own character, as we're going to see. So now we have two dead sons, and the last one, Judah has no confidence that Shelah will fulfill his role, is how I would read this, so he holds him back as well. Ignoring that God's judgment on Onan was because Onan didn't fulfill his role. So Shelah is not fulfilling his role through Judah's actions, and he's already seen that God judges people for evil. He judges them when they do not do what is required of them. And Judah still, with a stiff neck, says, nope, not going to do it, not going to take part in this. We're not going to be involved in this, and does not require his youngest son to marry her. So in verse 12, now, after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friends Hira, the Adulamite. And was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anim which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was a daughter, his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. So Judah goes to visit the same friend shearing sheep a little further north. All of this is happening kind of between the Dead Sea and the... Um, Mediterranean Sea over towards the West Bank, um, and it's just kind of north of where Jacob would have been settled is where Judah is settled now, and he's going a little bit north of that from what we, from what we understand to where the sheep shearing is going on. This whole interaction between Judah and the suspected harlot gives you the impression that Judah, this is not the first time he's been involved in such a thing and that he knows how these transactions go. It's kind of odd that uh, it mentions that his wife has died, and it mentions that the time of mourning is up before he 
uh, does this, but at the same time, it's like this is, he seems awfully comfortable with this idea. Don't know for sure, um, but certainly gives us some in, more insight into the character of who Judah is and how far he has slipped away from being, again, one who fears God. He knows full well that Shelah is old enough and he's trying to avoid him carrying out his role and his responsibility. Certainly, he wouldn't have known that this is where the seed is, uh, that is promised to save man and save the earth is coming from. But at the same time, he's not willing to do what would be the right thing to do. You have to ask yourself as well, well, how much does Tamar know? Does Tamar know that she is going to conceive through all this? Does she understand that? And is that, is that what her goal here is? Or is it just to trap Judah? Is it to shame him because of what he has done? And, and certainly there is the possibility that if the sons don't live up to the role of the, for the brother, that the next one in line would be Judah himself having now, and that's why it's mentioned that he's a widower, and now he is able to actually fulfill that role for Tamar and for his son. We don't, we don't get that much insight here, but those things certainly come to mind. And she certainly does do, I mean, this story doesn't happen without the fact that he doesn't have a goat, and she takes these things that would have been very identifiable as his. Everyone would know that this, these things belong to Judah. Um, they're the things he carries with him at all times. It's his, his you know, his wallet and, or his ID card and his, um, you know, the specific, the specific things that he would have that would be unlike anyone else's. These are handmade items. These are things that are, are very specific to Judah himself. And she apparently gets what she is after and goes away. Again, giving you the impression that her plan is not yet totally completed, that there's more to this that she is planning on. And and we see that then in in verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, so to get his stuff back, he doesn't find her. And so the friend asked the, the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place says, there has been no temple prostitute here. And Judah said, well, let her keep the stuff. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. So on a couple of different levels here, Judah wants to avoid embarrassment. It's not like he can go after this woman to get his stuff back because he's going to look like an idiot um, because he went into a harlot, but he also has the whole thing where she didn't even take payment from him, refused payment, and the whole thing is just going to become a joke to everybody when they see what Judah's done here. And so he says, that's enough, we're done. Verse 24 then, now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. 
Now, if we jump forward to the Old Testament law, her punishment would actually be stoning. Um, but certainly, this is a severe response from somebody who's been in the same sin, who is engaged in the same issues, and, and all too often that is the case. The things that we do ourselves, we respond most strongly to in others. I think partly to, to make those around us feel that, that uh, we would certainly never be involved in that, but also um, I think there's an understanding in ourselves, the ugliness of that sin. There's a lot of different reasons that that takes place. So it was while she was being brought out to be killed that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and whose cords and whose staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. So Tamar sends ahead. She's going to her death and she sends ahead to Judah, who in his role as head of the family would be the one who would be judging his daughter-in-law. That whole thing about judge not lest you be judged doesn't mean don't judge. It says if you judge, you're going to get judged at the same level. And here Judah recognizes that I am just as bad. In fact, I'm worse, not only because I didn't give Shelah my son, but my son to her, but because I brought this whole situation about that this is all on, on me and he recognizes what he's done. Now, there's no mention here that she tries to make a laughing stock of him, that she tries to get him uh, punished for what he has done. Certainly he deserves it. And there's, there's this almost a humility in the character of Tamar in, uh, in her reaction to her father-in-law. She sends things ahead. She doesn't stand before the, the whole city gate and bring these things out just as they're ready to, ready to kill her. Instead, she makes her point. And I think that's because this is what she was after from the beginning. She wanted the line continued as it should be, and it wasn't being done. And at the heart of that was because of Judah, but also because of the evilness of his sons. And she accomplishes the goal. So in verse 27, it came about at that time, she was giving birth and behold, there were twins in her womb. And lots of twins, don't they? There's twins in the womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, but it came about as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. There is a lot of the oldest son isn't really the oldest son, or the oldest son doesn't actually receive the blessing someone else does. And, and we're seeing that. We saw that with Reuben. We saw that with Jacob and Esau. It just goes back and back. And, and here we're seeing that all over again. Now, on an aside, having delivered twins... The worst thing you can do is shake the hand of the baby as it's coming out. 
You don't want that. And, and I've, I've watched enough animals be born where that's okay, where the feet come out first, you grab the feet, you pull them, you hook chains up if you have to and hook it to the pickup and all that stuff. People, we don't do that. That's bad. There's not enough room for more than just the head coming out. And so this is really interesting. In fact, in, in human medicine, the fact that these two are born is just without any problems is absolutely fascinating because if the hand can come out and the head isn't up against the hand, so that it can come out. Then you also worry about the cord coming out and getting caught. And then there's all the problems with twins. And I was just, I was trying to picture this and what I would do if this actually happened and the craziness that's involved. And um, yeah, I have no idea how they did what they did back then. It's impressive. Um, but we have these twins born and we have Perez. So if we jump forward to Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Christ, And it starts, <clears throat> verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it starts with Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, there we go, and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram, and it goes all the way down. To verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Obviously, they didn't have Matthew 1 when Moses was giving them Genesis 38. We do, and we see the importance of the line, and we can see, going back, why this was so important, why this had to come about, why it was that, that Perez... Maybe even why it is that Perez is actually the one who was born first, even though he was not the one who put his hand out first, that he was going to supplant Zerah and carry the line forward. And then it also is amazing because you look and you say, well, so you're going to tell me that this whole story of these terrible people is who the Messiah comes through. It's, it's through Judah who was married to a Canaanite, and it wasn't the Canaanite, and, and there's a decent chance that um, Tamar, we aren't told, but Tamar certainly wasn't within the right group, wasn't within the right line, and it's through these people in all of these circumstances that the Christ would come, that the Messiah, the promised seed comes. And we're actually seeing, and, and I can just picture on the road to Emmaus as Jesus is walking, explaining how all things pertain to himself. Certainly, these are the types of things that when he looked back in the Old Testament, he said, oh yeah, and by the way, did you know my 14 removed grandfather, 12th removed grandfather was actually Perez. Remember chapter 38 in Genesis? Not that they had chapters, but that's why that story's there. That's why this is so important. When you look back at it and you see what in the world is this doing in the middle of it, that's why. If you look back and you say, why was Judah, the tribe of Judah, chosen? It wasn't because of the greatness of Judah. It wasn't because here is the son that set himself above and beyond all of the others. It wasn't that at all. Judah's the one that left his brothers and went off and married a Canaanite, lived 
in the debauchery of the land. And through that still, the promised seed came through the sin that was there. And if we look at Deuteronomy, I believe it's Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God doesn't set His love on His people Israel because of something awesome about them. But instead, he sets his love on the people of Israel for his own purposes. And actually saving them from Egypt was for his own purpose because he was fulfilling the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And we see that ultimate promise here is being carried forward. So as we continue to move forward, we see the other part of this is not just the importance of this single line moving forward, but the importance of the family unit is being made in Genesis again. And we, that's actually been present from the beginning where the husband and wife became one flesh back with Adam and Eve and moving forward. And, and the, the hatred that Satan has, not only for the coming of the promise, but also for the family unit, he understood that in order for me to prevent this from happening, I have to attack then the family. I have to stop the progression of this line. And this progression of this line comes from the union of man and woman and the production of a child over and over and over again. Not only between the parents and the children, but also between children themselves. And even Christ himself promises that that, that will continue. But here we see the importance of of dealing properly with your children, putting them in an environment to be successful, putting them in an environment to know God, rather than taking them away from the family, the, the generalized family that knows God, and removing them from that influence. We see the importance of, of even those who are married in the family being treated appropriately, and that whole unit is being attacked here. But in spite of that, God wins. In spite of that, things carry forward. And so that's the other lesson I think that is really important as we think about the whole purpose of Genesis being the seed moving forward. It's also the idea that in this story, is also, it's all built around family, especially now, as I've said, we're looking at single individuals passing forward to a single son, Abraham to Isaac, not his only son, but the preeminent son, then Isaac to Jacob rather than Esau. Now Jacob with the 12, and we're seeing, okay, now God is going to be working with this entire family unit that's going to become a great nation. <clears throat> so that's an importance that we see as well. And then, then we, whether you look at it as we get back to the story of Joseph, or we take this aside again to look at the story of Joseph, we're back in chapter 39 dealing with Joseph himself. So 39 verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the, Ish- bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. 
just in case you forgot about what Joseph was, Joseph was completely removed from his family, completely removed from his brothers. Again, those important bonds that are supposed to be there in family were disintegrated, were destroyed, were attacked. Certainly his brothers were guilty, but certainly also an act of Satan himself. You can't, can't doubt that Satan saw Joseph and his preeminence and his father and also thought this is where the line is coming through and attacks Joseph and, and encourages the brothers to do to, to fulfill the hatred that's in their heart. Joseph is still in a bad spot. Now, just imagine for yourself what, what Joseph, what's going on here with Joseph. He has not only been removed from his family as a teenager, but he is owned by the chief bodyguard of Pharaoh. So he is owned, and you're like, well, that's a preeminent place to be a slave. No, um, he is, he is as enslaved as he possibly can be. He is not going to get out. This would not be a, a situation where he can go, hey, maybe I can escape and get out of here if I wait one night and uh, trick the bloodhounds into chasing something else and I'll get out of here. No, he is stuck. He is in the heart of Egypt, stuck as a slave in this family. Yeah. Yes. So got the connections between Joseph and the Ishmaelites, the Ishmaelites then selling him to uh, Potiphar's guy. Yes. But 37, 27, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother and our own flesh and his brothers listen to him. 28, then Midianite traders Yeah, so the, yeah, and then you keep going. So they pulled him up and took Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. So the, are the Ishmaelites. Yeah. Yep. Descendants of Ishmael and from the land of Midian. Yeah. Thank you. All right. No, thank you. So he's a slave. He's in a completely foreign land. So so picture this of, of what this would be. This would be you as a teenager taken by your siblings, or if you don't have siblings, by your cousins or aunts and uncles or somebody, and selling you off to a place where it would be very difficult for your family to travel and get you. So like, imagine being a slave in... This would be closer to a slave in Eastern Europe sold to uh, traffickers, human traffickers, down into Eastern Europe where your family doesn't know where you are. So there's no hope of them coming and rescuing you. Your father doesn't possess certain skills that allow him to come and rescue you. It's not happening. Yeah, yeah. Jacob is not, not Liam Neeson and he isn't going to come and get his child back. <clears throat> You are completely without hope, separated from family, the place you know, what you do, everything that you could possibly have hope in in this world has been removed from you. You have no control over what you do from a day-to-day -day basis. 
You are at the whim of the person who has authority directly above you. And above them, eventually you get up to the person who runs the guard for all of the great country of Egypt. You are stuck. This is why uh, I encourage, if you ever have a child who goes off to basic training, study the life of Joseph, because you know what? Joseph in Potiphar's house is kind of like where you're going to be. You're going to be completely separated from your family. You're not going to be allowed to talk to them for weeks at a time. And while you're there, you're going to be told to do everything you do will have to be based on a command you've been given. You will have no control over yourself. You'll have no control over what it is you're going to do. But at least there you know that at some point it ends and you get released. Joseph didn't even have that hope. So bear that in mind. That's the situation he's in. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. Then it came about that from that time, he made him overseer in the house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So God starts to bless Joseph. It says in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And reading through that, what did it look like to be a successful man? What was it about Joseph that made him a successful man? So he's in the house of his master. So we can assume then he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. And who was in charge of what he was doing? Who was in charge of Joseph? Well, ultimately Pharaoh, but in that house, Potiphar. And, and Joseph certainly as a slave who was, who was just brought from up in the land of Canaan was not made all of these things. And Potiphar probably didn't have direct interaction with Joseph on a daily basis. Joseph, in this situation that he's put in, in the house of Potiphar, is in a situation where he would have been at the lowest level, and he would have had to do what he's told, that he would have had to do as he was told, and complete the task given him every day in such a way that he was a good slave. He was a good servant to his master that he did what he was supposed to be doing. So the success of Joseph certainly was tied with how good he was in his position, even as a lowly foreign slave who owned nothing, not even his own self. And certainly you wouldn't have faulted Joseph for being less than a good worker less than a good servant. After all, he had been through so much and he had so little left and he certainly had no hope left in this world. 
but that the Lord was with Joseph is tied directly with him being a successful man. This success that Joseph has as a servant in fulfilling that role is not just from Joseph doing what he's supposed to do and being quote-unquote good, it's because of God's presence with Joseph that these things occur. And there is a difference there. It's subtle, but it's important. I would argue that Joseph doing as he should was a result of God's work in Joseph. Certainly didn't learn this behavior from his brothers. Now, he may have learned it through conversations with his father. Remember, his father had to work 14 years and then another six years for a man who treated him poorly. And his father goes through there and explains that, yeah, when, when he talks to Laban, this is why I'm leaving is because I have done everything you'd ever ask of me. I have taken a hit every time something bad has happened to the flock. It's costed me, not you. I have been a good and faithful servant. And certainly Joseph and Jacob would have been close. And you can imagine that those stories flowed back and forth about, uh, or flowed to Joseph about that experience that Jacob had. And, and Joseph would have known about those things because clearly Joseph knows the God of his father and grandfather and great-grandfather. So he's a successful man and he's in the house. He's a successful man in the house of his master. That success is tied again to him having a master and completing the things that he is supposed to be completing. Now there are different types of blessing from God. His presence doesn't always bring about material or managerial blessing. You can't say, well, God is with me, and therefore I am successful at work, or I am getting promoted, or I'm getting this new job. And you could read this and say, well, this is, this is what it means. Is if I'm doing good and I'm doing right, I'm going to have material and managerial blessing. Let's just remember, Joseph gets no material here. He's still a slave at the end of this. And ultimately, not to, this is a spoiler, um, God is raising him up so that he will be placed in the best, tightest security, most important prison in all of Egypt. He is with him, setting him up to be thrown into prison unjustly. So understand that the blessings of God here that are flowing to Potiphar are going to accomplish the will of God. That part of that blessing of God here is that he is making Joseph act appropriately. He's involved in what Joseph is doing, but Joseph is the one getting up every day and doing these things. He is striving as well to be a good servant and is being noticed by his master and God is helping him accomplish that and also carrying out the plan that he has. Do be reminded that the lack of any visible blessing does not mean God is not with you. Jacob, Joseph was at the bottom of, I mean, he was below rock bottom here, and yet it doesn't mean God is not with him. God was with him then and began to work again in Joseph's life. So this statement that God is with Joseph is just explaining why there were good things happening. Why it is that, uh, that Joseph was a good servant is because God was with him. Why it is that Potiphar noticed all this? Because God was with him. Why it is 
that Potiphar continued to increase the important role that Joseph had, it was because God was with him. It's all because of God. God is carrying out his plan. So the blessing upon Joseph <clears throat> is so great that a pagan who's at the very top of the rung and Joseph at the very bottom actually can't help but notice it. So his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Potiphar noticed that surely this man is being blessed by the gods because he's actually doing, he's actually accomplishing things that just, it's beyond what, what we can explain. So he finds favor in his sight. And first of all, he makes him his own personal servant. Then he puts him over the house. So you're not just my personal servant. I can't have you just serving me. That's great that you're serving me, but I also, you know, it'd be great if you'd manage my house for me. And so he puts him in charge of that. <clears throat> and that goes well. He goes, you know what? Forget just the house. How about you, you'll just be in charge of my possessions. All my portfolios, all of my real estate, all the businesses I have going on, I want you to be over charge of that. And Joseph's like, okay, I got it. So he's in charge of all of that he owns. And it came about at that time that, that he made him in charge of all that he owns, that God then turns and starts blessing the Egyptian. Everything is blessed then. On the, so the cows are, are having twins, and there's more sheep than they can count, and they're all healthy. And that's the kind of thing we're seeing in the fields, because it's everything from the house and the fields. All his investments are doing great. The ships are coming back and they're full of, of great treasures from the trading that they're doing. That's the picture we have here is that Potiphar is seeing himself blessed, knowing fully well that God is blessing Joseph. And Joseph here isn't a bad manager. Again, there's that other aspect of it. Joseph is being an amazing slave for him. So the blessing of God is on everything Potiphar owns, from his house to his fields. Everything is being blessed. So he finally says, everything I have, you're in charge of, Joseph. You just, you take it and run with it. I'll sit back and watch. Um, he still has someone in charge of which he, what he eats, and we find out later uh, that that's an important role that a person plays, and that would be, you know, here, try the food before I eat it and make sure it's not poison um, or that you're, you're not poisoning me. Um, so not a, uh, it, it, one could read that as, okay, I, I trust you up to this very last point, <clears throat> but it also is, uh, would not be the role that you would necessarily want your, your best manager, your best servant to be in. You'd want them around. You wouldn't want them to take that hit necessarily. He's trusted him with everything, and we find that he's trusted him with everything that he has been given, also except for his own wife, as Joseph says later in this chapter. It is interesting that this story also makes me think of the time when Abraham lied about Sarah to Pharaoh and... Actually, it wasn't Pharaoh. It was up in, it was the second time he lied about Sarah's wife. And God closed all their wombs of all of his servants and everything. He's like, hey, 
This explains it. You lied to me about who Sarah was. So we see this, this blessing of God that comes from the people of God following God and Him using them to move them forward. The presence of God is, is very important. But do understand, Joseph and all that he's obtained here is a slave. And he's still separated from family and he still has a lot, but in, or still has a lot having been taken from him. And you can imagine that in a heartbeat he would, he would leave it all if he got to go home and see his father again. So what is the point of all this? Why is it that God has brought him here? I should mention, first of all, about... Um, well, I think we've covered that enough. So again, Joseph has now moved to a point where he would have been at such importance that what's about to happen is going to put him right where God wants him, and that's in prison. So we jump to uh, verse 7, starting halfway down, verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked at, with desire at Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in charge, uh, or in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil against God? So Joseph accepts, or Potiphar's wife wants Joseph, and Joseph accepted his position in regard to Potiphar, so he respects his, his master, the one who owns him, as being the husband of this woman. And he also respects God in the position that God would take in all this. His attitude towards authority and his attitude towards God are tied together. He does not want to sin against Potiphar, and he mentions that first of all. Certainly that would have been the important thing to, to relay to the wife. But he also then says, ultimately, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? Your attitude towards authority is your attitude towards God, and you certainly should be training your children along those lines. Why is it that you obey your parents? Well, because your parents is your representative of authority that God has given you. Why is it you obey your teachers? Because your parents sent you to that school to obey those teachers because they are my representative when I cannot be there. They are the authority. How easy is it for us to look at authority right now in this world and understand that our attitude towards those authorities is also our attitude towards God? That the authorities that have been placed above us are authorities that have been placed there by God. Not an easy time to do that, right? Everybody ready to run out and do everything that the government tells you to do? As one who submits to the authorities God has given, except where they ask you to do things that would be a sin against God. It's a challenge, isn't it? Yet we see that with Joseph 
here. He understands that, yes, it's a sin against the one who has authority over me, but ultimately that's a sin against God. Ultimately, it's against him. Very tough to stomach in uh, this type of position in our world today, but it is the biblical position. And you have to just be very careful as, as you look at your daily life and you look at the things that we, we see that there needs to be that attitude of submission to the authorities God has placed above us and that you are honoring them as you should. So Joseph here, it also should be noted, knows enough that if he does this sin, it is a sin against God. He would have been taught by his father and possibly he would have been alive and known his grandfather. So he, he, they would have known about God. He would have understood God. And we're given some insight as to, okay, how is it that Joseph in the depths of despair, the lowliest servant in this man's house, never going to see his family again, is stuck there to serve forever in his mind? How is it that he's accomplished this? Well, he knew who God was. And he understood the, the, the role of authority in his life. And he submitted and did what he was supposed to do, and God was with him. He knows the God of his father. He knows the God of Isaac. He knows the God of Abraham. He has an understanding also of what sin is, that sin is ultimately an offense against God. And he understands also that some sins have even greater consequences than others. He, got, he saw that in his brother's sin against himself. Surely if they would have just, you know, beat the snot out of him when he showed up, would have been a lesser sin than selling him off to Egypt, never to be seen or heard from again. And he calls this a great evil and sin. Well, if there's a great evil and sin, there's certainly other evils. Now, all sin, any sin can cause you to fall short from the glory of God and be worthy of judgment. But there are certain sins, certain physical sins, certain sins that break up family that would cause this kind of disruption that are even greater. That God looks on with a special disdain, a special hatred. So those are some lessons that he apparently has been given before he got into this point, before he was challenged with these things. Those lessons are given and, and he's able as a teenager to put that into practice and avoid falling to sin. There's a lot of lessons we can learn here about how J Joseph deals with this. But understand also that God is working here to accomplish what his goals are. It's 10 o'clock. Are you telling me I should finish? <laughs> Wrap it up? Okay. All right, so we will make it to 18. So Joseph shows resolve and determination. It's decided in his heart. He is convinced. And if you're convinced of something, you're acting out of a conviction. If you have a conviction, it's because you're convinced that this is true. But it was that conviction that ends up trapping him. It was his running and fleeing, we're going to see, that ends up causing him to, get, to appear to get caught. And yeah, we will go ahead and stop there. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this opportunity again to be in your word.
pray, Lord, that you will challenge our hearts, that we will not read your word in such a way as to look and, and just be entertained by the stories and, and to see the good in ourselves, Lord. But instead, Lord, I pray that we take this opportunity to see where we fall short, where we don't live up to your standards and where we need improvement, Lord. That we wouldn't look at Joseph and say, ah, I too can be a great man. But instead, we'd look at our own hearts and realize where we fall short, unless you are part of it, unless you are with us, Lord, unless you are carrying out your plan through us and we're striving to accomplish the same. It's in your son's name we pray these things, for he did all that. Amen.